You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so we are in part three of a set of sermons called Risk. And this set of sermons is really connected to a larger season in the life of our church called All In. All In, if you've been here for any length of time, um, is a two-year generosity initiative that we are right at that one-year mark of right now. So Risk is connected up into that All In set of sermons and that All In season for us, where we are thinking about and talking through and considering what does it mean to walk by faith? That's the main heart of what All In is about. It's a generosity initiative, but it's secondarily that. It's primarily a, a moment for us to think about what does it look like for us to venture all on God to, to, to walk by faith in God. And that is where the, the set of sermons risk comes in. Um, I love how one pastor of a generation ago said it. He said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. This is what it feels like to, to walk by faith. It feels like risk. When you're just thinking about the word faith, it might be helpful for you just to think in terms of defining faith by risk. Faith is the willingness to risk anything on God. That's what faith is. It's the willingness to take anything in your life and risk it on God whenever he says to risk it. This is what it means to, to walk by faith. And so, and that's really to, to any particular area of our life. That may be a time issue. It may be a, like our family structure issue, or it may be, like we're gonna consider today, um, money and possessions. What, what does it mean for us to be generous in a way that leads us and takes us into a place of risk? So this is the uh, sermon in this set of sermons where we're gonna think about our generosity, think about money and our relationship to it in our life. Now to do that, I wanna make sure that we set the table in a way that would be helpful for everyone in the room. And I wanna set the table for us to think about these sort of things this morning by referring to one particular scene that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. All three of those gospels have this particular scene in it. And you might remember this scene. There's this one moment when a young man comes up to Jesus. And we know three things about this man. We know that he is young. We know that he is a ruler. And we know this dude's pockets are like bulging with cash. He has got some serious um, money in the bank account. So we know those three things about him. And he comes to Jesus with a, with a question that really we're all curious about. We all want to know. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and, uh, and instantly points him to the law. Uh, Jesus rattles off a few of the Ten Commandments and, and the rich young ruler looks back at Jesus and says, done, nailed it, anything else you need. And Jesus, I think just in a moment, of, it says he, he looked at him and loved him, just in a moment of compassion, looking at this man's you know, particular self-deception, this man thinking he's here when he's really here. Jesus says, let, let me just show you how far off you are from keeping the Ten Commandments. Let me just show you how far your heart really is from me. Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and says, here's what I want you to do. Why don't you go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And in that moment, the rich young ruler turns away from Jesus. He walks away from Jesus. And the Bible said that he was sad and sorrowful. Now, I think it's, that's a good story for us to consider and just ask the question, what do we learn? What kind of things do we learn from that particular story? And I think the lessons are numerous. Let me just give you a few of them. Um, in this story, we are shown why the Bible warns us against the dangers of money and possessions. This story shows us why, why does the Bible warn us? Why does the Bible contain warnings like 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10? 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this love of money thing, this this money sickness that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Why is it that the Bible has all of those sorts of warnings in it? Why is it that the Bible has 2,350 verses about money and possessions, many of which are warnings? Why is that? I think the answer, and this, this story of the rich young ruler shows us, the answer is because God loves us. And God knows that money is a ruthless competitor for the affections of your heart. Now just think on that for a minute. It is a ruthless competitor for the affections of your heart. The Bible knows that what we own can so easily begin to own us. And God loves us. So God looks at us as a good dad and says, don't be ensnared by these things. Watch yourself. Be be warned. Don't don't let these things get a hold of your heart. This is why those warnings are in the Bible. This story shows us that money can become idolatrous. Money can so easily slip into the place of God. Money can so easily in our lives not just be money. It can be the thing we're looking to for life, for satisfaction and happiness and, and comfort in our life. It can so easily elevate itself to that status. I mean, think about in that story, the rich young ruler. If you were answering the question, why could that man not let go of his money so he could have Jesus for crying out loud? Why could he not do that? The, the, the answer is, is because when he thought about money and he thought about Jesus, money felt like it was a more reliable currency to secure for him happiness in his life to secure for him that he was gonna be a someone, to secure safety and security in his life. Money felt more dependable to get those things than Jesus did. And now hear me on this. Anytime money feels more dependable to get you what you really need in life and want in life than Jesus does, you will walk away from Jesus for your money every single time. It shows us how easily money can slip into idolatry for us. The story shows us that money can separate us from God. That that story shows us this, that money can separate us from God. It shows us, now hear me on this, that the more we own, the more likely it is that we will walk away from Jesus when Jesus looks at us and asks us to walk away from everything that we own. I'm gonna say that one more time. Now we just, this is like one of those things we need to think about. The more we own, the more money and possessions you have, the more likely it is that you will walk away from Jesus when he asks you to walk away from everything that you own. Now that is a, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? When I think about the story of the rich young ruler, I think in a lot of ways, it takes Mark 8, 34, familiar passage. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The story of the rich young ruler puts that, that, verse in economic language. Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler and saying, if you're going to come after me, here's something that's got to happen. The way you relate to money and think about money has to be fundamentally changed. You actually have to want me more than money. You have to trust me more than you do money and possessions. If you're going to come after me, those things have to change. I have to be your all. Money cannot be your all. And if you can't do that, if you can't let go of your cash to take up the cross, it will eternally ruin you. 
Now that is so sobering to think about. If we can't let go of our money so that we can take hold of Jesus, we will be eternally ruined. And the rich young ruler shows us that that is very possible. Money can have those sort of tentacles into our hearts and into our life. This story shows us and really just stands as an everlasting warning to you and I. The story of the rich young ruler is an everlasting warning. And the warning goes like this. If we hold out on God, hear me on this. If we hold out on God, unwilling to risk, in particular this story, our money and possessions for Jesus' sake, if we hold out on, on God, one day we'll hold a wasted life. Those are, the, those are the options here. If we hold out on God, if we're unable to risk, unable to shove it all in for Jesus' sake, one day it will lead down the path of a wasted life. Now, it's a story like that that I think sobers us and gets us ready to hear what the Bible has to say about generosity and giving. It's a story like that when we begin to feel the dangers of money and possessions, when we begin to see how quickly they can become idolatrous in our life, that readies us to consider what would generosity look like? What would God want for us in our generosity? And that leads us to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, these two particular chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, form the largest section in the Bible dealing with money and possessions, dealing with what God would say about generosity. Paul is on his uh, third missionary journey. He's writing from somewhere in Macedonia, probably Philippi, back to the church in Corinth, and he's, he's encouraging them to give. If you, if you have the ESV version of the Bible... Right above uh, the title of chapter eight in 2 Corinthians, you'll see uh, this title, encourage them to give generously. That, that is telling you what Paul is trying to do. He is trying to encourage the church in Corinth to give generously. Now, 2 Corinthians eight and nine has a ton of stuff in it. We could pull out 10 to 15 marks of Christian generosity, Christian giving out of these two chapters that I don't have time for this morning. I can just do four. I just wanna encourage you at some point this week, it would be great if you just read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to try to glean more of what God would say about our generosity. But I just wanna point out four marks of generosity from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, in particular, the first four to five verses of 2 Corinthians 8. The passage starts like this, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now think about the church in, in Macedonia. It, it's severe affliction, extreme poverty. But those two things, it says in verse two, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul is using the poverty-stricken Macedonian church to encourage giving in the wealthier Corinthian church. And then you get to verse three. And I want you to underline these first three words in verse three. For they gave. You might just underline those three words. For they gave. Here's the first things we learn about Christian generosity, Christian giving. Number one is Christians give. Christians give. Generosity is the reflex of a redeemed heart. It's the reflex. So like when God saves us, it unlocks generosity in that heart that used to be closed to generosity. For they gave. For they gave should be the three-word summary of every Christian's life. 
For they gave, for they gave of their time, their skills, their houses, their families, their energy, their tears, their prayers, their cars, and in particular in this passage, their money and possessions, for they gave. Now just, let's take a moment here to ask yourself the question, would that three word summary fit in your life? Would that fit for you? If somebody were writing about your life, would the words for he gave or for she gave, would that be applicable in an apt description? Christian Smith is a uh, sociologist who has done a lot of work kind of within the Christian world. And years ago, he wrote a book called Passing the Plate, where he did a ton of research in Christian's kind of people who would self-identify as Christians and their generosity. And let me just share a few things that he found in doing that research in terms of Christians and giving. Let me just share three of them with you. One of his conclusions was this. One of four self-identified Christians give nothing. So if you just, if, if, if this group of people right here were representative of all Christians everywhere in, in, in America, and we divided this room up into to groups of four, there would be one-fourth of us, one of those groups of, you know, of four, one of those groups would be the category of, we, we're self-identifying as Christian, but we give nothing in our life. Generosity is just absent in our life. The second thing he, he concluded was a vast majority of Christians give very little. So of self-identified Christians, the median giving is 0.62%. So per every $100, 62 cents goes out to the mission of Jesus. So the median giving is 0.62%. The average giving is 2.45%. This is what he found just as he did all of this research among Christians in America or self-identified Christians in America. The vast majority of Christians give very little. Then the third thing I thought was really interesting is he said, the more a person makes he discovered that the lower the percentage that they give. Now that is really counterintuitive, isn't it? We would think that the more you make, that the more you would end up giving. But that's not what he found. I mean, I think most of us operate with some sort of an assumption. The man, if like tomorrow I won the lottery, like just $5 million showed up at my door tomorrow, that we would then be really generous people. But, but that, he's saying that's not a correct assumption. People who get more money are not, more generous. Typically, they are less generous when they get more money. He found that dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than they give today. Actually give, you know, the more we make, the less we end up giving. So we can't live by the assumption that if we just had more, then we would be more generous. It just doesn't work that way. If you have $100 today and you can't be generous with it, you're not going to be generous if God entrusted you with 100,000 or 100 million. That's not, you just wouldn't. What, you're, what you've got right now is showing you, is your heart generous or not? And that's not dependent upon what you have. So let's just do a moment here. Now, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the sobering sort of evaluation questions in a moment like this is just to consider that in Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I think it just begs the question, like what sort of conclusions should we make about those who would self-identify the church of Jesus Christ in America? What sort of conclusions should we make about th that group of people in light of those giving statistics? And I just don't know a way around of like one conclusion being that it is showing something about where our heart is, that we have been seduced by lesser lovers, namely the lover of money and possessions. 
that, that our hearts have been seduced in that way. So I think it's just a moment for us to ask the question, like in our lives personally, what does our generosity show about our heart, about where our heart is? Is it showing that our hearts are all in with Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, growing in a vibrant love of Jesus? Is it, is it showing that? Point number one, Christians give. Point number two, Christians give sacrificially. Christians give sacrificially. You see this in verse three, for they gave. That's the, the three word summary of a Christian life. But there was a particular way that they were giving. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, but not just according to their means, beyond their means. Their giving outdid what they had. They were giving above their means. Christians give sacrificially. There is um, what I would just call a devastating assumption that most people who are in the church have in regards to their money. Probably the easiest way into that is just to ask a question. When you think in your life about everything that's been entrusted to you, the money and possessions that you have, if you were asked the question, what percentage of those or what part of what you have is God interested in? You know, does God stake a claim in? And what part of that does God not care about? Does God not really have a claim in? I think most people who would you know, self-identify as Christians would say God is concerned about 10%. And then you know, what, the, the other 90, it's just kind of left for us to do whatever we want to do with. That, that, that tithe mentality, that, that, that idea of like, God is just concerned about this segment of, of what we have, but the rest of what we have is just ours. God has no claim on those things. And the Bible could just not be more on the other side of that. That is not the way the Bible sees what we have in our life. The Bible sees it like this. We, we talked about the parable of the talents a few weeks ago. The Bible sees it as God is the owner of everything. God entrusts things to us. We are his stewards. And as a steward, we are then responsible for making sure that what he entrusts to us is used for his plans and his purposes. And one day God will call us to account and we are going to give an account, not just for 10% of what he entrusts to us, but for all 100% of what God entrusts to us. We're responsible for all of that. Now with that, let me just do a little bit of work on the idea of the tithe, just really briefly here. In the Old Testament, the tithe was definitely a present reality. Um, and, and here is how an Old Testament, just Jewish Israelite would have, would have seen their generosity. They would have been giving 10% yearly to the priest and the, the sacrificial sort of temple system set up in the Old Testament. So 10% would have gone there. They would have also given another 10% to make the festivals, the various festivals uh, throughout the uh, given year to make those go. So they'd be giving 10% to the temple and the priest, 10% to these festivals. And then once every third year, they would give 10% to help the poor. So in any given year, that would be 23.3%. Uh, that would just kind of be the normal generosity. And then you would have sort of special projects and things on top of that, you know, periodically. That would be normal generosity in an Old Testament Jewish person's life. Now let's carry that into the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus commends the tithe in Matthew 23, but it's never commanded in the New Testament. Instead of talking in terms of amounts and percentages it's not how the New Testament does it. In the New Testament, there's talk about sacrifice. So amount and percentages, those decrease. Those are not the emphasis. Sacrifice, faith, risk, that is the emphasis of the New Testament. Maybe you could just summarize it this way. Sacrifice is the New Testament standard of giving. Sacrifice, not a percent, not a tenth. Sacrifice is the New Testament standard of giving. 
when you think about how you can relate to generosity, there's really three positions you could relate you know, to generosity in. One you might call less than your ability, because that would be God has entrusted these things to you, but you are giving less than your ability to give. That would be one way. Another way you could relate to generosity is you could be giving according to your ability. So God has given you this, and your giving is matching what it is that God has given you. The third way you can relate to generosity is to give beyond your ability. It's your giving is here, or your, your, what God has entrusted to you is here, but your generosity is there. Now that is the uncharted water that Paul is pressing us toward in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, toward that sort of beyond your ability giving, that sort of sacrificial giving. I mean, remember the Macedonian Christians, they are poor. They're the model of, of like poor down here. The, the Corinthians are wealthy. These guys are, are poor. They're in a severe test of affliction. But it says they are giving not just according to their ability. According to our ability is, oh, we have this spare dollar. We'll give that spare dollar to the causes of Jesus. That's not how they're giving. They're giving beyond their ability. Beyond their ability is, I'm going to have to cut deeply into my life to find a dollar. Oh, there's now the dollar. Now I'm going to give that dollar that I have just cut into my life to find. That is giving beyond your ability. That is where Paul is taking us. This is where the New Testament is urging us and calling us to go. This sort of sacrificial giving is a risky giving. It's risky. It's taking you to the point of risk. It's taking you to the point of faith. It's giving in such a way that cuts deeply into your daily life. Cuts so deep in that many times it is past the point of how all the numbers would add up and kind of compute. That is sacrificial giving. That is giving in a way that is beyond your ability. Now, Luke 21 offers a good example of this. In Luke 21, Jesus is watching people give. Now, that's a sobering thought. Jesus watches those things. He knows those things. Jesus is watching people give, and, uh, and there are people dropping bombs into the offering basket. I mean, they're just dropping big cash into the basket and it elicits no response from Jesus. But then there's this little widow that walks up to the, to the baskets. She has two coins left over. It's everything she has to live on. And she puts those two coins into the basket. Jesus stops everything and commends this lady, holds her up as a model of faith. Now, why does Jesus do that? It's not because the amount or percentage was big. It's because the sacrifice was big. It's because the risk was big. It's because the amount of faith that she exhibited in that moment was big. That's why Jesus is commending it. Luke 21 shows us that Jesus is less concerned with amount and percentages and more concerned with sacrifice and risk. And there is a difference between those two things. Sacrifice and risk isn't determined by what we give, but by what's left after we give. And Jesus is impressed when we give in such a way where it is requiring faith and sacrifice and risk to step into that. Now, just apply that for a moment. Are you giving in a way that is sacrificial? Does that describe your life? And, you know, here's the thing. I don't know what amount that is for you. I have no, I, there's no way I could tell you that. But that is part of what this season is about, is just learning that and figuring that out and asking the Lord these things. You know, I, I, oftentimes what happens in a moment like this is we want to know, well, how much is that? And again, there's no way we could give like 
it's this for you. There's no way we could do that. I, I think as a general kind of guideline, a, a tithe is, can be a great place to start. If you think of a tithe like, do you remember when you're, uh, you know, a little kid is starting to ride a bike? If you've had a little kid that's kind of gotten to that, you know, phase, or if you remember when you were a little kid, what, what typically happens? We start with training wheels. You kind of get your feel on the bike. That's what, a lot of times what a tithe would be. It is training wheels as we're getting our feel on the bike of sacrifice. But training wheels really shouldn't be the long-term goal of a bike rider, right? Like, like us figuring out what does sacrifice feel like where we can take the training wheels off is where we would all want to get to in our life. So we all have to, we could start with the training wheels of, of a tithe, but we all want to figure out what would sacrifice look like. That is what this season is for for you. Now, let me just point you in your risk booklet to uh, page 28. If you go to page 28 in your book, I just want you to go ahead and look at this really briefly. Look at page 28 and 29. It's actually 28 through 31, th those pages. This is one tool that I think would be very helpful for you. It's just called the all-in journey. And it's just gonna give you some categories of, of generosity and how we can relate to it and some questions to ask about it. I can, and here's part of your homework. It's gonna be in your week three home, you know, home group discussion questions is to read through this and to think about this and to identify where are you, you know, in this generosity journey? Where would you identify that you're in this place? And then what would be the next step of obedience for you? What would be the next thing that Jesus would want for you as you're on that, that trajectory of getting to that place of sacrifice? What would be the next step of obedience? So this week, we would love for you to think about those things, to seek to apply that, figure out what would that look like in your life. So point one, Christians give. Point two, Christians give sacrificially. Point three, Christians give joyfully. <clears throat> look again at verses three and four. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. And then look at this phrase at the end of verse three. Of their own accord. Verse four. This is one of the most amazing verses in these two chapters. Begging us. I mean, the Macedonian Christians were looking at Paul and saying, Paul, would you please let us give? They're begging us earnestly for the favor, for the grace, for the opportunity, for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul is leading a generosity initiative. He casts vision for it. And they are just beating down his door for the opportunity to give. These people are in a severe test of affliction, in extreme poverty, and they are begging Paul to give. Now, that is showing us the sort of heart that, that God is after. It's a joyfully generous heart. You, you see this spelled out in detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, the next chapter. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now that verse is showing us that God's not just after any sort of obedience. He is after a certain kind of obedience motivated from the right desire. It's not just God saying, give. It's God saying, Give in a certain way, namely cheerfully, joyfully. Now, here's the thing. That is the sort of giving that Jesus makes possible in our life. I mean, think about the last time you had the opportunity to give. If you're anything like me, here's how that moment went. You probably did it, but it's over all sorts of like resistance and walls and barriers in your heart. You did it, but you really had to fight just to get there to do it. You knew it was the right thing to do, but it was hard to do. 
Jesus is about changing all of our hearts so that those walls go down and we become people begging for the opportunity to give. So that we become joyful givers. People who our generosity is attached to joy in a really deep way. Jesus is about making you into that and me into that. And I don't know about you, but I could use God doing more of that in me. Breaking down those walls in me, that resistance in me. Now, now this just gives us an, an opportunity to contrast that with that cynical sort of heart that many of us have when it comes to giving. Um, probably four or five years ago, I had a friend call me and their church had just started a generosity initiative, similar to what we're doing right now. And uh, he called me, he's like, Rodney, I just have to tell this to someone. Man, our church just started this generosity initiative and I just feel so deeply. All they care about is money, all they want is money. They're just, all they, all they are about is that. And I'm just listening to him just go on and on about this. And my first thought was, I have felt and my heart has said everything that he's saying. I can relate to every single thing he's feeling right now. Man, my heart has felt that. It has so felt that. Now, I think it just gives it, and I'm just guessing your heart has felt those sort of things when you have opportunities to give in extraordinary ways. All sorts of cynicism begins to pop up in our lives and hearts. Now, I want to just process that with you for a couple of minutes. Why is that? I think there are two primary reasons why cynicism arises in us. And one I might just put under the category of crazy pastors. Crazy pastors. One of the hard things about being a pastor is you are then looped into the category called pastor. And many people in the category called pastor do crazy things, like doing a generosity initiative so that they can raise $70 million for their private jet. That's crazy, right? And, and you just can flip on the news and see enough of those things that for many of us, it springs a real cynical heart when we think about moments like this. So just on behalf of the category of pastor, if you've had bad experiences with things like this, I just wanna look at you and say, I'm sorry for that. I hate that you've had those experiences in church life of, of crazy pastors doing crazy things. So that's one reason cynicism can sprout in us. Uh, the other reason that cynicism can so often sprout in us, it, we might just label this idolatry. Idolatry. I, I am aware as a pastor that preaching about money will spring crazy in my heart and the lives of us collectively, unlike any other issue that I could preach on. And I think there's a reason for that. And one of the main reasons is because one of the, the, the primary cultural idols of just the culture that you live in and I live in, just the air we breathe, one of the primary cultural idols is money and possessions. And because it's one of the primary cultural idols, it makes it really hard to see in us. But it's so deeply embedded in us. It's got all these little tentacles wrapped all around our heart, but it's hard to see. But a moment like this where we're looking at a church family and saying, we want you to think about your generosity. We want you to plan your generosity over the next year. We want you to give sacrificially over the next year. It is a great opportunity from Jesus to all of us, me included, to just do a good evaluation of our heart. Are we seeing all sorts of cynicism spring up in there? Are you having to fight all sorts of resistance and walls and obstacles to get to the place of joyfully giving? If so, it is an opportunity from the Lord to, to look at your heart, to, to do some testing of your heart. Are you, have the, as the idol of money and possessions, has it got its teeth into you? 
Man, is it driving you in ways that you wouldn't be aware of? So often, I'm not saying it's every time, but so often cynicism is a defense mechanism to keep those things in our life that we want undisturbed, undisturbed. Cynicism is one of those defense mechanisms that we use to keep those things tucked down and pushed down when we don't have to deal with them. And this is an opportunity in your life and my heart to deal with these things. And doesn't this passage provide a great corrective? We just get to hold up the Macedonian Christians who were begging for the, for the opportunity to be generous. We get to hold them up. Then we get to look at our heart and just ask Jesus to change our heart into that. God, would you please do that? I, and I, would you please pray for me in that? I need God to do that in my life, for God to create more of a begging, sort of joyful, gener you know, generosity sort of a heart in me. And I'm just assuming that's probably applicable to you too. So we know this, Christians give, Christians give sacrificially, Christians give joyfully, and here's the last point. Christians give purposefully. Christians give purposefully. You see it here in verses three and four. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of, here's the purpose, taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul came to the church in Corinth and he is telling them, there are things that need to be done. There is a need and I'm looking at you now and asking you to step into that need. So Paul is casting vision and, and then saying, will you please step into this vision so we can make this happen? Now, I think pastors have a Paul-like role in every local congregation to look at their congregation and to say, let me show you why you should give. Let me, let me paint what we're doing here and then call you into that. So I just wanna spend the rest of our time thinking about that with you. Why is it that we right now in this season should be giving in an extraordinary sort of way? We have said from day one that everything given to all in is going to three things. Everything given over this two year period, started last April, we'll go to April of 2018, is going to three things. The first thing is to cultivate ministry. This is the ongoing disciple making work happening right here at Stonegate. And Stonegate, God is using you, this church family, to do such great things in the lives of people. I mean, there are people who have been rescued by Jesus, who are growing up in Jesus, who are maturing in Jesus. There are people that have just been blown up in all sorts of great ways by Jesus because of the work of this particular church family. Everything you are giving is going to making more of those sorts of stories. J just to have a moment here with us, if over the last year you would say either one of two things has happened, Either I've gotten saved because of the work of Stonegate Church and the people here at Stonegate. I've been rescued by Jesus or God has been doing some really good things maturing me in my walk with the Lord. If either of those two things have been true for you, will you just raise your hand right there where you are? Just raise your hand. Just up high where everybody can see it. If you would say, God has been using this church family to do those sorts of things, just raise your hand right there where you are. This is the work that God is doing around here. And your giving is making more stories just like that possible. So one thing that All In will be doing is cultivate ministry. The next thing it's gonna uh, go to is plant the gospel. Your generosity will allow us to plant the gospel. That has our church planting and orphan care endeavors in it. So first, church planting. Your generosity will help us plant churches. We committed from the first day of All In that this would be a sending season, not just kind of this self-absorbed sort of a season for us as a church family. And one of the things that I'm most proud about over the last year is that over the last year of All In, the first year of a generosity initiative, we have sent somewhere between 120 and 130 people out to church planters. Good leaders out for the sake of our church planting efforts. 
I mean, good, solid families we have watched walk right out the door. Many of them really good friends of mine that we have seen walk right out the door so that we could, you know, multiply the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say thank you as a church family for being willing to do that. And one of the things that, that, one of the reasons why church planting is a big deal for us is because it takes us out of addition and into multiplication. Think of all the great things happening at Stonegate right now. And imagine it not just happening at this church, but that church in that location and another church in that location and another church in that location. And we could just go on down the list of churches. We could talk about KC Maddox and Lawrence, Kansas and the great things God is doing there. Just, I mean, really good work that God is doing with KC and Lawrence. We could talk about Jason Hatch in Midland, Texas, Valentine up in Cedar Hill, Brad over in Arlington, Raphael, who is in Williamsport, uh, Pennsylvania, where they do that Little League World Series. Uh, We helped him get up there helping fund him. And when he got there, there were eight people in a church that was just about to die. When I talked to him just a few weeks ago, they had almost a hundred people now in that church. Just revitalized. I mean, just about to shut its doors and just God is doing such good work there. We could talk about Dustin Neely in Franklin, Tennessee. We could talk about Subash in India and we could just keep on going down the list. But this is what we're committed to. We wanna see the gospel of Jesus Christ multiply. We love multiplication. Can you just imagine if it's not just Stonegate, but let's just say over the next 10 or 15 years, we plant 50, 60, 70 churches. And let's just say it's 50 churches. And let's just say each of those have 400 people in them. That's 20,000 people reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, listen, when I think about that, that's not just something I'm willing to give a little cash to personally. It's something I'm willing to give my life to seeing that happen. I mean, that that is good gospel multiplying work that you're being a part of and that you're giving is going to help. And it also is a part of our orphan care. All that you give is helping our orphan care as well. Over the last year, we have seen such good fruit. In 2016, we had six adoptions, six families licensed as foster homes, two more currently in process, four families waiting for adoptive placements, eight families became respite certified, and more than 75 families in 2016 expressed interest in orphan care. Like we're, we're moving in that direction. In the early parts of 2017, we just had the Woodalls come home with the baby this, here recently that they're adopting. Uh, the Needhams just got back last Friday from India and, and their adoption. I mean, God is doing good work around here and your generosity is making that possible. It's enabling those things. So it's cultivate ministry, plant the gospel. And thirdly, your generosity is gonna help us put down roots. On the first day of, uh, you know, us meeting in the conference center, we knew there would be a day when they wanted us out of the conference center. That day is September of 2018. That's when we have to be out of here. We're gonna be homeless as of September, 2018. So we've known that we have to figure out a way that doesn't kill us to get into a long-term sort of, future base for mission for our church family. And so we are heading uh, over the next year and a half to Walnut Grove in 287. And the, th- this season of generosity, this two-year season, all-in season of generosity, in particular, the last year of all-in, it is impossible for me to stress the importance of this year in making that happen. What, what happens in terms of generosity over the next 12 to 15 months of, of this church family's life the next 12 to 15 months is going to set us up for the next 20, 30, 40 years of gospel ministry. That is how important our generosity, not in like five years from now, but right now is for this church family. It sets us up, it builds the runway for a fruitful 20, 30, 40 year season. That's how important it is. So everything we're giving is going to cultivate ministry, plant the gospel and to put down roots. Now, let me just kind of walk through how this is gonna play out for us as a church family. On March the 5th, 
we are gonna have a commitment Sunday. That's two Sundays from today. We're gonna have a commitment Sunday. And on that day, we're gonna encourage everyone that's a part of our church family. If you're a new visitor, man, you can come and just enjoy. You don't have to worry about anything I'm about to say. But if this is your church home, we're asking that everyone that's a part of this church family, 100% of us would go on this journey with the Lord, that over the last year of All In, you would nail down that number that would be sacrificial, glad-hearted generosity for you and your family. And so on March 5th, we're gonna commit to that number. Now on that day, it's gonna give some people who didn't make a commitment last year an opportunity to step into that last year with us and to make a commitment over the last year of All In. Um, For those who did make a commitment last year, it's gonna give you a chance to be encouraged by that, to be strengthened in that commitment as you seek to fulfill it. And for others in the room that made a commitment last year, it's gonna be a chance for the Lord to challenge you and to call you to new and bigger steps of faith. So whatever that is for you, we're just encouraging you to do the work on that. And on March 5th, we're gonna all commit together. Even if you filled out a card last year, we're all doing another one right now for the last year of All In. So we're all gonna do that together on March 5th. Now, just a couple of thoughts on ways to kind of think about that moment. We have found that this is the uh, commitment card. looks like this. You you got one with your book. We'll give you another one on March 5th. But on that commitment card, there is a gift chart on the back of it. You can see it up on the screen. And we have just found that one helpful tool is to get before the Lord with that gift chart and just say, God, would you please show me what it is that you would want from me? Or if you're married and have a family, my family. God, would you please show me what it would look like for me to be generous over this last year of All In? And that gift chart has been a really helpful tool for a lot of people. But the big thing, and I want you to hear this just loud and clear, the bullseye is not anyone at Stonegate looking at you and saying, it's gotta be that number. That's not what anyone is saying. Let me explain to you what it is that we are hoping for everyone in our church family. We are praying and hoping that every one of us would get before the Lord with an open heart and listen, then have the courage to obey whatever it is that Jesus says. Now, let me describe to you what it means to be open-hearted versus closed-hearted before the Lord. Here's what it looks like to be closed-hearted. To be closed-hearted, we bring to the Lord what is negotiable. God, these are the things we're willing to talk about with you. But All the while, we have under lock and key behind us in a chest those things that are really valuable to us. Those things are under lock and key, and we bring to the Lord what's negotiable. That's a closed heart. An open heart operates this way. It's a really scary thing to do, but you turn around and you open up that chest and you bring out the things that you really look to for life, that you really are depending on to make your life work, and you bring even those things before the Lord, and you say with an open heart, God, It's scary, but whatever you want from me, God, I'm willing to do that. That's what it means to be open-hearted before Jesus. And that's the bullseye, that we take everything that we have, everything that God's entrusted to us, we put that before the Lord, and then we listen to Jesus. We, We listen. So here's the homework that I'm asking everyone to do this week in our church family. You might just go to page 52 in your booklet, 52, and just put this as a number 10 in your home group discussion questions. Here's the 10th question that's not written in there that you need to write in there. This week, I'm asking everyone in our church family, I think this would be the application of that, to list their five most valuable possessions. That could be IRAs, that could be house. I don't know what that is for you, but your five most valuable possessions. And then what it means to be open before the Lord is we take our five most valuable things, those things under the lock and key. We bring those before the Lord and we honestly ask the Lord, God, what would you want from me in any of these things over the next year? Now, let me clarify. I have no agenda with what the Lord does for you in that. 
I have no agenda. I don't know what he's going to do with you. He very well may say nothing. He very well may say something. It may be Stonegate related. It may not be Stonegate related. I'm just saying, what does it look like for every one of us to get the most valuable things before the Lord and to ask the Lord, God, what would you want from me? Now, let me tell you why that's important. Let me just bring this full circle to the rich young ruler. How do you know you're not the rich young ruler? How do I know that I'm not the rich young ruler? You know, the only way we know that is to consistently bring our most valuable things before the Lord and to ask the Lord if he wants them. And if he says, I do, we offer it to him. And can I just say, I hate doing that. I don't really want to do that right now. The, the Lord has asked Laura and I to give one of our most valuable five things. I don't really, there's still parts of me that don't like it. But how do we know we're not the rich young ruler unless we're willing to do that? How do we know we are in the end not going to be eternally ruined because we love our possessions more than Jesus other than we get our most valuable things before the Lord and we let the Lord make the call on those things and just let the rich young ruler stand as that warning for you. I mean, at the end of the day, the rich young ruler became the, the rich old ruler, right? And that rich old ruler, I just imagine him one day on his deathbed looking back over his life and one of the things he regrets more than anything else is that one defining moment when he had Jesus before him. But he just couldn't take the risk. He just couldn't push it all in with Jesus. He withheld it. And it eternally ruined him because he withheld it. Let, let that just stand as a warning to all of us. If we hold out on God, we are going to hold a wasted life at the end. By God's grace, I don't want that for any of us. Let's pray together. Let me give you just a moment with Jesus here to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Obedience could come in a lot of different ways and shapes and sizes this morning and I'm just praying that the Lord would be clear in showing you what that would look like. And today we're gonna end with communion and I'm so glad that we're doing that because at the end of the day, this passage shows us that the generosity of God is what unlocks generosity in us. And when we take communion, we are reminding ourselves of the generosity of God. That God would give his son to be broken and bloodied on a cross for our sin. And it's when we see and taste and experience that generosity from God that we become an open-handed, generous people. So this is how communion works for us. We have two tables at the front, one at the back. When you're ready this morning, you can come up, dip the bread in the juice, and then eat the bread. And that is how we're doing communion this morning. But let me remind you, communion is for those who are in relationship with God. If you have never trusted Jesus, this is your morning for that. Man, go all in with Jesus. He would love to rescue and save you this morning. So if that's you, before you take communion, take Jesus. For the rest of us in the room, let me remind you that it's for those in right relationship with God. If there's any sin, anything that you're withholding from God, any resistance from God that needs to be repented of, do that before you come and take communion. Oh, Father, would you help us this morning? Would you speak to us today? Would you, would you show us
the areas in our life that need to be changed by your good news of grace for us? God, would you show us what generosity needs to look like in our life? And God, as we take communion, would you remind us of your generosity toward us? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.